Uh, birth of a child is always a very special thing, and I think most parents will, will recognise that it's the birth of your first child that you probably remember the most. Uh, with the birth of every child, I suppose parents always have that uh, expectation about what their children will do when they grow up. I mean, will they be someone significant, someone important? Will they be a world leader? Will they cure diseases? Uh, eventually, most of us get quite realistic and our sights get set a little lower. Um, with our kids, we just hoped that they'd be able to eat with cutlery by the time they'd finished high school. But Christmas is almost here, 25 days until Christmas, just in case you haven't started your Christmas shopping yet. And at the very heart of the Christmas story, it's clearly about the birth of a child, the birth of Jesus. But it's fascinating that when Luke writes his account, he tells us about the birth of another child first up. The first thing that he wants to tell us about is not the birth of Jesus, but the birth of another child. And that's what we have in Luke chapter 1. Right at the beginning of Luke's gospel, we're introduced to two two people, two people who are about to become parents, but it's not Mary and Joseph. It's Elizabeth and Zechariah. Zechariah, we're told, was a Levite. Uh, That was the tribe that staffed the temple, that worked in the temple. And Elizabeth, his wife, uh, was also from a priestly line. And we're told that they were both godly people. They were people who were longing for the day when God would send his rescuer. But the other detail that we have about this couple is that they are unable to have children. They're well on in years and they don't have any children at this point in their lives. Now for a married couple, not having children wasn't just a disappointment back in those days. It was often seen by some people as being God's judgment or God's punishment on them for some reason. The amazing thing is God seems to have a a significant number of childless people as key players in his story. I mean, you've got Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, uh, Samuel's mother, all of these people who had been unable to have children in their life, who were well on in years. And Zechariah and Elizabeth are obviously in very good company. Well, Zechariah was uh, rostered on to work at the temple. He had the responsibility of lighting the incense in one of the inner parts of the temple. And we're told that he's gone in there to do that while the people are outside praying. And an angel appears to him while he's in there. The angel tells him that Elizabeth is going to have a son and that this child is going to be used mightily by God. The angel says that People will rejoice at the birth of this child, not just Zechariah and Elizabeth. Many people will rejoice because of the birth of their son, that he'll bring people back to God, that he will change people's lives. But above all, he'll prepare the way for the rescuer to come. And the angel tells Zechariah that they are to name the child John, which means grace or gift of God. Now, Zechariah's response to all of this is slightly strange. I mean, we've got a guy who's a priest. We're told that he's a godly man and an angel has appeared to him and told him that he's going to have a son who will be used mightily by God. And how does Zechariah respond? Well, he basically says, prove it. He doesn't believe what the angel says. He seems to doubt the angel. He doesn't believe it at all. He wants proof that this will actually happen. Well, the angel tells him, here's the proof. 
between now and when the child's born, you're not going to be able to speak. The angel says, I've actually come from the very presence of God. I think he's a little indignant about Zechariah's uh, disbelief. He says, I've come from the very presence of God with a message for you, and you don't want to believe it? Well, here it is. You won't speak until this child is born. Well, everything happens just as the angel says. Elizabeth falls pregnant and Zechariah loses his speech. Well, the big day finally comes and it's the birth, the son. Um, Elizabeth gives birth to this healthy boy and all the family and friends are no doubt elated, thrilled for them that they now have this child and they're celebrating with them. And they're all set to give him his name on the day of his circumcision and which will be his father's name. It was to carry on the family line. And this is what it says, chapter 1, verse 59, if you've got your Bible there. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. Now, For the friends and family, it was a foregone conclusion that they were going to call this child Zechariah. They weren't going to be having any other children. They were well on in years. It was a fluke they would have considered that they have this child. So we've got to give this one the father's name. But Elizabeth says, no, we are to call him John. Well, all eyes turn to Zechariah, the man who hasn't been able to speak since for the last nine months. And I love the way this story unfolds. Have a look at what it says in verse 62. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. They made signs. Why did they make signs? There's nothing wrong with his hearing. It's his speech that's gone. I suppose it's like that thing of, you know, when you're speaking to someone from a foreign country who doesn't speak English, you think that if you just speak a bit louder that that will actually work. Well, they're making signs to him to try and find out what he wants to call the child. Well, and this is what happens, verse 63. He asked for a writing tablet and to everyone's astonishment he wrote, his name is John. He took the slate and wrote his name, his John, not because he liked the name, not because he was keen on breaking with tradition, he did it because this was what the angel told him to do. Zechariah is now in no doubt that what the angel said is true, that this child will do great things. Zechariah regains his voice and he doesn't just speak. Starting in verse 68, he actually sings. We have Zechariah's song or Zechariah's prophecy. But the strange thing about this song is that the first two thirds of the song actually aren't about the birth of his own son. They're about the birth of that other child, the one that's going to come next in Luke's gospel. He starts out talking about the birth of Jesus. See it there in verse 68? Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Do you notice anything unusual about those verses? They're in the past tense. Back in those days, if you wanted to state something with absolute certainty, you said it as though it's already happened. That's how confident you are that this will take place. 
So he states all of these things in the past tense. He's not confused. He just knows with absolute certainty that God has sent his Redeemer or will send his Redeemer. Jesus will come and redeem his people, will save his people. And Zechariah ties it all back to the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And then in verse 76, he talks about his own son. When a new sportsman uh, hits the arena and becomes well-known through television and things, there's always those comparisons made with older sportsmen of the past. Uh, let me give you a couple of cricket examples. If, if a new batsman comes along, well, we're going to be comparing whoever it is to Donald Bradman uh, because he is the, the master batsman, the, the, the man who knew how to play that game. So every comparison will be made to Donald Bradman, whether or not this is the next Bradman. Or if they're a bowler, it'll be someone like Shane Warne or Dennis Lilly that they'll be comparing them to. Well, the comparisons are made for John the child that's just been born. And the comparison that's made for him is a comparison with Elijah. Now, go back to what the angel says uh, back in chapter in chapter 1, verse 17. And this is what the angel says. And he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of, their father, of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. But to understand the whole Elijah connection here, you've got to know who Elijah is, haven't you? I mean, it's no good saying, oh, he's just like Donald Bradman, if no one's got a clue who Donald Bradman is. Well, the comparison to Elijah is because Elijah was the great prophet of God. He was the prophet who continued to trust God even when the rest of Israel turned their back on God, when he felt like he was the only one left. Now, if you went to Sunday school as a kid, you probably remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal up on the top of the mountain where Elijah prayed and God answered his prayer and the prophets of Baal prayed and nothing happened. He is the great prophet of God and he does big things. But the thing that everybody in Israel knew is that before the Messiah comes, before God's promised rescuer comes, Elijah's going to come first. The very closing verses of the Old Testament, if you go to Matthew's Gospel and then just flip back one page, these are the last two verses that you read in the Old Testament. God says this, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. It's exactly the same words the angel quotes, isn't it? Here's John who is going to have the the spirit and the power of Elijah to do what he does, to turn the hearts of fathers to their children. This is it. The promised saviour is coming and John is going to prepare the way for him. He's going to announce the coming of this saviour. Let me finish off with just two practical applications that I think come up out of this passage. One of them's really just a minor detail in the story, but it's an important lesson that we need to learn and I think need to keep learning. And the lesson is this. Don't just say that you believe... Act like you believe. 
Now, where am I getting that from in the story? Well, I'm getting that from Zechariah in the temple when the angel comes and appears to him. And the angel, this is what the angel says as to why Zechariah has been struck dumb. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true in their proper time. Now I'm sure that we're all thinking to ourselves, I bet if an angel came and spoke to me, I would believe what they said. If an angel appears before me, I'm pretty confident that I will accept it as being the truth. But the point is this. Here's Zechariah working in the temple, a godly man waiting for God to send his promised saviour. There are people just outside who are praying and probably praying for God to send his promised saviour. And it's all starting to unfold in front of him, but he doesn't believe it. So the problem for Zechariah was that the faith was in his head, but it didn't really translate into action. It didn't really translate into everyday life. He had those ideas in his head about what he believed, but when the reality is standing there right in front of him saying, the saviour is coming and your son is going to prepare the way for him, Zechariah doesn't believe it. When the angel says, this is what's going to happen, Zechariah says, nah, I don't think so. See, in his head he thought he did believe, but in practice that belief didn't translate into action. So here's the challenge for us. Make sure that you don't just say that you believe in Jesus. Make sure that you act like you believe in Jesus. Make sure that your faith finds its way into your actions. But hands down, my favourite verses in this passage are the very end of Zechariah's song where he says this, The rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Well, 2015 is very rapidly drawing to a close. And in many ways, it's been a pretty dark year, hasn't it? I mean, we just think about the things that have happened in the past couple of months, the terror attacks that there have been around the world. 130 people killed in Paris. 224 people killed on that Russian plane that was bombed over the Sinai Peninsula. 100 dead from a bombing at a peace rally in Turkey. It often look like that shadow of death is all around us, can't it? It can often feel like we're living in that darkness. But the light shines more brightly in the darkness. And the message of Christmas, the message of Jesus, well, it's a message that our world needs more than ever. And it's a message that we do need to make sure that we're sharing. Peace with God because of what Jesus has done. Peace to our world because those who live in the light are the ones who truly can bring peace to the world. That's what Zechariah is saying. 
The rising sun will come to you from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the path of peace. The gift of Jesus is the gift that we need to keep giving away because our world most definitely needs it.